Uh, our text this morning um, comes from Matthew chapter 5, and this is a, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and Jesus is addressing the issue of the law and, um, and the abiding significance of the law. And uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says, <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, for I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, if I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word. And I pray, Father, that uh, in, a, in a multiplicity of words from the pulpit, things would come clear and simple and pure and bright in the hearts and minds of those who are hearing. We pray that your word would go forth and do what it always does, that is, whatever you've purposed for it to do. It corrects, it rebukes, it exhorts, it trains in righteousness. And by it, your servant is warned. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, as I said before, this morning we're beginning um, our study of the Ten Commandments, and uh, this should take us into the April-May time frame. Uh, this week I want to introduce to you the law of God as a concept and sort of unpack some important thought tools for dealing with the law of God in general and the moral law in particular. And so this morning, I want to ask and answer just three basic questions. Question number one, what is the law? What is the law? Question number two, why was the law, and especially the moral law, given? And then question number three, how shall the law be correctly understood and applied? So those are our three questions, and so let's just dive right in with question number one. What is the law? What is the law? And some of this will be review, and I'm glad if it's review for you because it means that you've imbibed these concepts, and they're important concepts. What is the law? Have you ever noticed that Christians seem to, to pick and choose the Old Testament scriptures that they apply to themselves? And if you're at all engaged in talking with the worldlings who are a little bit more informed about things that have to do with the Bible, they will very quickly point out there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that you Christians don't do and never would do. So, for instance, like what? Well, for instance, in uh, Leviticus chapter 4, if you want to turn there, you can. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 4, and verse 27, we find the following. Leviticus 4, 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed, 
and he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood and his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And then all of its fat you shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Now, show of hands, did anybody in here this week sin unintentionally? Where's my goats? You need to be bringing me goats if we're going to believe the Bible, right? Did anyone in here enjoy bacon, sausage, or a ham sandwich this week? Raise your hands. Well, Leviticus 11.7 says we shouldn't eat pork. Has, has any of you, you don't need to raise your hands for this, I don't want to know. Has any of you ever cursed your father or your mother? Don't raise your hand. I told you I didn't want you to raise your hand. Or parents, has any of your kids ever cursed at you? Well, according to Exodus 21, 17, we should take you out in the parking lot and throw rocks at you until you're dead. Nobody brought a goat. We've all eaten pork, and we haven't executed any rebellious teenagers yet. Could happen. Does this mean we don't take the Bible seriously? No, it does not. When we look at the Old Testament books that are referred to so often as the law, we find that it is actually not one thing, but three things interwoven together. There are three different categories of the law. And this is what Jesus means when he said, I have come to fulfill the law, and no jot and no tittle will pass away from it. The first category of law that we find in our Old Testament is what we call, in, in Reformed theology, the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law has to do with the lifestyle and the worship of the Jewish people as the only people of God on earth for thousands of years. And they have to do with things like, the ceremonial law has to do with things like animal sacrifices and what is clean or unclean, worship in the tabernacle, the clothing that the priests had to wear. These things God gave to the Jewish people to mark them out as the people through whom the Messiah would come. And we understand that they also prefigure Christ in one way or another and his teachings and his benefits. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what was he referring back to? He was referring back to the, the, sin, the, the atoning sacrifices that were made once a year on Yom Kippur for the sins of the people of Israel. And those sacrifices and that blood prefigured a blood that would never have to be repeated in sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews teaches us. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful book. The book of Hebrews teaches us how Jesus and the New Testament mesh with the Old Testament. So God gave them to the Jews as a, as a part to, to, to prefigure Christ, as a, as a pattern of worship. He also gave them to the Jews as a means of grace. And what we mean by that is when they were obeyed in that time, they were effective for the things that were promised because they were the means of true worship that God had laid out. 
And so God mediated his grace through those things, those practices, in the same way that he mediates his grace to us through, for instance, baptism and the Lord's Supper. When Christ came, though, those things were made obsolete because they were pointing forward to Christ. And, and when Christ came, it's like, okay, the things that point to Christ, that pointed to Christ and foretold his coming, those have all been fulfilled. We don't need to do them anymore. And so, for instance, you find in the book of Mark that uh, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so we can have our bacon-wrapped scallops. Thank you, Jesus. We love you for that. The second component of the law, or category of the law, is the civil law. The civil law. Israel was a nation like any other nation, and a nation has to be governed by laws. And God gave them laws to govern them as a nation. And those laws covered the same things that our laws cover today. Things like civic responsibility, criminal justice, mediation of conflicts, how to dispose of property. And so we find that God was concerned with things like bribery and lying under oath, and what were the proper penalties for theft? What were the rules for restitution when something had been lost, stolen, destroyed by another person's misconduct? What are the rules around marriage, and what are the rules around divorce, and property, and use of property, and murder, and accidental death? Those are the kinds of things that our, our court systems deal with all the time today, and the Jewish people, because they were a nation, had to deal with those things too. And God gave them a, a legal framework for running their government that was based on the, the final category of law we're going to talk about here in a second, on the moral law. Now, when you look back in the Old Testament and they have things like, you know, you're, you, you, when you build a house, make sure that you put a, a low fence around the perimeter of the roof. And it has to be a certain height. And you say, well, what in the world's going on there? Well, in those days, they didn't hang out on the porch. They hung out on the roof. And, and so you wanted a, a railing, basically, to keep your guests safe. You don't want any children running over the edge of the roof and falling down and hurting themselves. And so God was concerned, you know, for things like that. Now, does that mean that we today should be putting little railings around our roof? No. But it does mean that we have a principle that our guests should be safe in our home. And so today we have all these building codes. Mark, I believe you just put in some new benches around the perimeter of your back porch. It looks really nice. And you could get away with it because of the height of the porch. Otherwise, you'd have to have a railing. And, and there's all these things written into the code to keep our guests safe. But the principle is our guests should be safe in our homes. And God wants that to be. And we're obeying God when we do things like put a, a, a fence around our swimming pool to keep the neighbor kids from wandering in accidentally. Those laws, however, ceased to be binding when Israel ceased to be an independent, self-governing nation. Now, the third category or component of the law is the most important one for our purposes, and it's called the moral law, the moral law of God. And the moral law of God was written on the heart of man from the beginning. Think about it for a minute. How did Cain know that it was wrong to kill Abel? Because the moral law was written on his heart. How did Lot know 
that what the men of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to do to the angels was wicked. Well, the law of God was written on his heart. How did Joseph know that it was a sin against God to sleep with Potiphar's wife? The Ten Commandments hadn't been given and wouldn't be given for hundreds and hundreds more years. The moral law was written on his heart. We know right from wrong as human beings because the moral law of God is written on our hearts. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3. This is why when God judges the world, the world will be without excuse. Because God, there's no, nobody's going to be able to say, I didn't know it was wrong to murder somebody, God. <laughs> Sorry. And God's going to go, you knew absolutely that it was wrong. You knew from the feelings of guilt that you had and shame and the fact that you wanted to cover it up. And when God comes to judge the world, he will judge the world according to the standards that are written on our own hearts as well as on tablets of stone. Now, the moral law is summarized in a brief and condensed form in the Ten Commandments. That means the Ten Commandments have to be unpacked because there's a lot in there. They can be summarized in an even briefer form than the Ten Commandments. And we find this in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34 when somebody comes to Jesus and says, you know, how do you, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. These two things sum up the whole law and the prophets. So the whole thing is really an outworking of loving God and loving your neighbor. And if I love God, if I truly love God, I will do certain things. And if I love my neighbor and I truly love my neighbor, I will do certain things. I will also not do certain things. And the Ten Commandments then are a concise explanation of how that plays out when we live a godly life. And so the first four commandments are sometimes called the first table of the law. They show me in an outline form how I should love God. And you're gonna, we're going to work on memorizing the Ten Commandments here during these weeks. So the first commandment says uh, that you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, I won't worship any other gods besides him. And the biggest competition in most people's lives is not Buddha or Krishna, it's themselves. Second commandment says, don't make a graven image. I won't make use of any sort of images as an aid to my worship. In other words, I will worship the correct God and I will worship him correctly. I won't misuse his holy name or the things that point to him. And I will set aside one day in seven, the day that he has chosen, and I will devote it exclusively to him in worship and prayer and study and acts of necessity and acts of mercy. And when I love God, that framework will, will be the boundary of my, my life. The second table of the law is how you love your neighbor as yourself. That's commandments 5 through 10. So in the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother, I will honor those whom God has put in authority over me. And if I am in authority over anyone else, I will behave in a way that is congruent with how God wants godly people to exercise authority. I won't commit murder. I won't even get angry. 
because anger ends up leading to murder. I won't sin against my spouse and my neighbor by committing adultery. I, I won't steal from my neighbor. I won't lie to my neighbor. I don't look longingly and enviously on my neighbor's possessions. I'll be satisfied, in other words, with what God has given me. Now, it, it, it's important to understand that these commandments stand for much, much more than they actually say. They stand for much more than they actually say. And, and this is called, in biblical uh, interpretation, this is called a synecdoche. Everybody say synecdoche. Synecdoche. Okay? And, and this is a device where one part of a thing stands for the whole thing. Okay? Now, the, the best example that I know of in contemporary America is to talk to a farmer or a rancher about his cows. And when you want to know how many cows a farmer or a rancher has, you ask him, how many head of cattle do you have? How many head of cattle do you run? Now, in that, now, what, I'm not asking him, do you have any like decapitated cows laying around uh, in the meadow? What I'm asking, the head, which is part of the cow, stands for the whole cow. In the same way, what is commanded or forbidden in each commandment actually means much more than is said. And Jesus himself gives us this principle in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And if you want to look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, you'll see this. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders is, will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. And then a, a little bit further on in verse 27, he said, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what Jesus is saying is, in the sixth commandment, which forbids murder, what I'm actually doing is forbidding all kinds of things that would lead up to murder. Rage and anger. He says, in, in forbidding adultery, I'm also forbidding all kinds of things that lead up to it. You know, very often, the thing that restrains us from sin is not righteousness inside and wanting the right thing. It's, it's wanting the wrong thing, but finding no opportunity to express that wrongness. And so in our hearts, we're primed to do the wrong thing. And if we had the opportunity and thought we couldn't get caught, we'd do it. So what's restraining us isn't godliness. It's just lack of opportunity. Jesus says, I want you to become the kind of people who wouldn't take advantage of the opportunity if it presented itself. Because what's in your heart is right, is good. How does this work um, for the other commandments? Well, one of the, one of the things that, that I, it's actually, I, I love the Westminster Larger Catechism's meditations on the fifth commandment. You want to talk about a set of principles for ordering all of your relationships in life in a good and godly way. You go and read the Westminster Larger Catechism questions on the fifth commandment, and they're pretty extensive, all right? So what does it actually say in the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother, that the days may be long, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
Okay? That's the fifth commandment. Listen just as a, as a sample of what the larger catechism says of the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. To whom does father and mother refer in the fifth commandment? Father and mother refer not just to our parents, but to everyone who is older or more talented than we are, and specifically to those whom God has ordained to be over us in positions of authority, whether in our family, the church, or civil government. Okay? Why are those who are over us referred to as father and mother? The terms father and mother remind those in authority that like fathers and mothers, they are responsible for and should act in a loving and tender way, appropriately reflecting their particular relationship towards those under them. And those under them are also encouraged to accept their authority more willingly and cheerfully as if they were their parents. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? In general, the fifth commandment outlines our obligations to others depending upon our particular relationship to them, whether over them, under them, or equal to them. So, so for instance, let me tell you a secret. <clears throat> On the way back from uh, Iowa two weeks ago, I was going a little too fast through Des Moines. I was going a lot too fast, actually. I had no idea how fast I was going. I had an airplane up, and they clocked me. And I got pulled over. Now, what commandment did I violate? By speeding. Hmm? What? I, well, I did violate the civil law, but in terms of the Ten Commandments, what was my moral offense? I? <laughs> Does the government... Is the government over me? They're in authority over me, and God put them in authority over me, and the government set the speed limit in that particular place at, I think, 55, and I was going 82. So I violated the fifth commandment against the state of Iowa. I also violated the fifth commandment because my children were in my car and I am their superior and as a godly man, I am supposed to live as an example to them. And I failed. So as their superior, I violated the fifth commandment by not being respectable. Okay? So when we understand then, this, this reaches everywhere. As your pastor, I failed you by breaking the laws of the state of Iowa. Unintentionally, I will bring a goat and sacrifice it next week here on the altar. And you can burn the fat. And so when we see these things in detail, we start to work this out. You're like, oh, wow, okay. So when, when, a, when a, we elect an elder, what are we doing? We're, we're saying, this person is someone that we have elected to lead us. They are now our superior in spiritual matters in the church. And we should listen to them and do what they ask us to do and not do what they ask us not to do. Then as elders, we get together and we have to encourage each other and say, hey guys, we're an example here. And so we got to work just in our own meetings to, to relate to each other as equals in such a way that we're honoring each other and we're honoring God and we're behaving in an honorable way so that the people in the church listen to us. 
Okay? So all of those things are incumbent upon us just in the fifth commandment. We'll go into more detail on these things later. Now, the second question is, why was the moral law given? By the way, the cop was very nice, and he said, this is the closest to Santa Claus you're ever going to see this year, and he only wrote me up for five miles an hour over. So (laughs) thank you, officer. So the second question is, why was the moral law given? Well, we can draw three reasons why the moral law was given from the Scriptures. The first reason is for unbelieving, unregenerate men. God gives the moral law as a mirror to the lost person to show the lost person just how lost he or she is. And you know where people in our modern culture really come face to face with this very often is in 12-step groups. Because step four is take a fearless moral inventory of everything that your your addicted self has done and all the relationships that you have harmed and strained because you were in the grip of this this, uh, uh, terrible compulsion. Take a fearless moral inventory and then go and make amends wherever you can, wherever it wouldn't be destructive to do so. And the Ten Commandments are God's invitation to lost people. Hey, come take a fearless moral inventory. The commandments come to a person who feels pretty good about himself or herself and says, have you ever had an unworthy image of God in your mind? Have you ever seen him as an old man in the sky, for instance, or an indulgent father who just wants you to be happy? Well, you've violated the second commandment. You're an idolater. Have you ever had sex outside of the confines of a biblically defined marriage? Well, then you've broken the seventh commandment. Is God the most important person in your life? No. No. You've broken the first commandment. And on and on and on it goes. And then you show them what the Bible says about the penalty for violating the moral law of God. And that penalty is death. Eternal death death, damnation, and you tell them, hey, you are lost. You are doomed and without excuse. That's why God gave us the Ten Commandments. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. You know, amongst the old divines, the the old preachers, particularly in the first great awakening that swept through colonial America right before the the Revolutionary War, the old evangelists, the Wesleys and the Whitfields, would go and they would preach, and the first thing they would preach would be the law. And they would preach the law in such a way that their hearers who were not converted were cut to the heart and knew that they stood guilty before a holy God and were ready to cry out, what shall we do? And then they offered the gospel. And that was how they understood biblical preaching. There's one person that's doing this today that I know of. His name is Ray Comfort, and he's got a a wonderful little thing. Uh, He did it with, um, oh, what's that, Kirk Cameron. Uh, they They did a series together where he's got an evangelism program where you go out and, and you have this track that says, do you think you're a good person? And, you, and the person, you know, you ask them, do you think you're a good person? And people usually say, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, let's go through the law of God together and show you that you aren't. You know, it's funny because um, uh, during the Sturgis rally, 
Um, there was a, a Baptist group, a group of seminarians from, uh, from Southwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, and I, we had, were running a business during the rally, and I befriended them, and the tracks that they'd been given were junk. And, um, and they were trying to figure out the best way to evangelize, uh, you know, on the street during the Sturgis rally, which if you've ever been there, it's kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah comes to a town of 7,000. And, um, and so I got them these tracks from Kirk Cameron from, and Ray Comfort, the Revival's Golden Key. And they came back a couple of days later. And I said, well, how's it going, guys? And they're like, I've never seen people like this. You go up to them on the street and you go, do you think you're a good person? And they go, nope, going straight to hell. See you later. And they just walk on, right? At least they knew their condition. The second reason God gave the moral law is for the good and beneficial ordering of a society as a moral foundation for the laws of a society. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, it says in Proverbs 14.34. That's why in America, traditionally, we have put the Ten Commandments in two places in particular. In classrooms, where we're training our children to grow up to be good citizens. And in courtrooms, where juries are making decisions about what is right and what is wrong and what the penalty should be. And so the moral law has traditionally been posted in those places to remind people that this is the basis of a good government, a government that works, a government that is as fair as human beings can be. They serve as a, an explicit standard for virtuous citizenship. And then there's a, th a third use of the moral law, and that's for the believer. For the believer, the moral law of God is the way in which I walk after I have been saved. Now, hear me carefully. You are not saved by keeping the law. You are, say it with me, I am not saved by keeping the law. Say it again. I am not saved by keeping the law. The law shows me my guilt. It causes me to flee to the throne of grace. I say, Jesus, forgive me. I am a lawbreaker. And Jesus says, all right, I'll cover you with my grace. And incidentally, you know the, the grace, you know where he got that grace to cover you? By his keeping of the law perfectly. I will be your substitute, he says. I will apply my merits to your account and you will be saved. When you believe on me, you will be saved. And then we say, thank you, Jesus. How now shall I live? What do you want me to become? And he points us back to the law of God. And he says, oh, redeemed sinner, this is the way. Walk in it. You see, part of being transformed into Christ's likeness is being transformed into one who easily and joyously obeys the law of God from a sincere and grace-filled heart, which is exactly how Jesus lived. And so my life as a believer becomes marked by truth-telling instead of lies. Giving generously instead of stealing. Sexual purity. Proper respect for God-ordained authority. Sabbath-keeping. Carefulness in worship. And making sure that at every point in my life, I'm putting God above all else in my life. Now, the last question is, how shall the law be understood and applied correctly? 
And the Westminster uh, Confession gives us, or the larger catechism rather, gives us some very good principles. I'm, I'm going to go through the principles just very briefly. There's, there's a few of them, and we've got a printout, I think, on the screen. Um, th there's scriptural support for all of these. I'm just not going to take the time to go through it. So if you're, if you're curious uh, or you want to know more, just go online to, to um, any of the Presbyterian churches, PCA, OPC, EPC, and look for the Westminster Larger Catechism and, and start looking at the questions here on, on the law. All right? So how shall the law be applied? The Westminster gives us some very good principles, and I'm just going to share them with you without a great deal of commentary. So this is question 99 of the Larger Catechism. What are the guidelines for the proper understanding of the Ten Commandments? Answer, in order to understand the commandments properly, these guidelines should be followed. First of all, the law is perfect, and it binds the whole person to observe it completely, and according to its standard, to be completely righteous and perfectly obey every one of its obligations forever. On the negative side, the law forbids even the slightest or partial commission of any sin. So in other words, the law is the standard of what a godly life looks like. And we are under obligation to the law. Now the unbeliever and the believer, and we'll unpack this next week when we talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, the unbeliever and the believer are both under the law, but they're under the law in a different way. The unbeliever is under the law as a covenant of works because that was the original agreement that God made with Adam in the garden. And he didn't just make it with Adam. He made it with Adam and all of his descendants. And that, and that, that covenant of works says, here's the moral law of God. You are obliged to keep it perfectly in every way, in your thoughts, in your motives, in your outward actions, in your words, in your deeds, everything. You have to conform to this law. And human beings can't. And the penalty for law-breaking is death. So if you are born, you are born under the covenant of works. You are born obligated to keep this law. The minute you break it, death, hell. This is why we need Jesus. And for people who aren't used to digging this deeply into their thoughts and their motives and everything else, they think they're okay. All of a sudden they come and this law will crush them with its demands. There will be people who will come to me during this series, I promise you, and they will say, this is hard. This is depressing. This makes me feel bad. And I will go, yes, that's the point. That's what grace saves you from. So if you start feeling bad, don't mope and go away. Sit there and go, okay, Lord, I'm being crushed by this. Save me. Rescue me. Forgive me. Clothe me with your righteousness. So the unbeliever is obligated to perfectly keep the moral law of God. And the penalty of not doing so is death. Jesus perfectly kept the law on our behalf. And as our second Adam... His people, his elect, are in him. And his perfect obedience applies to us and covers us. And so we are obligated to keep the law, but not perfectly. And if we break the law, we're not damned for it. Because Jesus perfectly kept it 
and his merits are applied to our account. And that's called the covenant of grace. Like I said, we'll go through this next week a little bit. Second principle. Since the law is spiritual, it involves our understanding, our will, our emotions, and all the other faculties of the soul, as well as our words, our actions, and our self-expressions. So the things that you do outwardly as a show of righteousness, and people go, oh man, I can't believe they gave that much money, or I can't believe they did this wonderful thing, and you were doing it not to please God, but to get everybody to look at you, then your motives are wrong. And whatever you've done doesn't count. It's a sin. Because you're trying to bring glory to yourself rather than to God. Third principle. Different aspects of one and the same thing may be required or forbidden in several different commandments. In other words, the, the Ten Commandments interlace with each other. And one of the clearest evidences we have of that in Scripture is in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians, where Paul says covetousness is idolatry. So the 10th commandment is also a violation of the 2nd commandment. So the law is interlaced with itself. Four, when something is required, the opposite is forbidden. And where a specific sin is forbidden, its opposite is required. In the same way, when a requirement of the law adds a promise of some blessing for obeying it, that promise includes the threat for disobeying it. And when a threat is added, an opposite promise is included. Okay? So, for instance, um, in the, in the um, seventh commandment, God says, you shall not commit adultery. In the New Testament, Paul says a husband and wife should not deprive each other of sexual relations in any kind of systematic way except when they set aside time for prayer and fasting and then they should come together quickly. That's the, that's the implied commandment behind the commandment not to commit adultery. You shall not sleep with your neighbor's wife, but you shall sleep with your wife. Okay? And there are, there are many other instances of this. We will, we will start, suddenly start unpacking this and you'll start seeing this whole universe of stuff that you never thought of as a moral category. It'll start unpacking itself in front of you. So when the opposite is forbidden, uh, something is required, the opposite is forbidden. When something's forbidden, the opposite is required. Fifthly, what God forbids must never be done at any time under any circumstance. And what he commands always remains an obligation, although every particular obligation of the law does not apply in all circumstances or at all times. We'll just let that one stand there. Number six, the prohibitions against specific sins and the commandments to observe specific obligations are typical and so cover not just those particular sins or obligations, but all others of the same kind. They similarly include all the contributory clauses, means, opportunities, and appearances related to these sins and obligations. What does that mean? Well, for instance, some half-clever people have pointed out that the Ten Commandments do not forbid homosexuality or homosexual behavior. Well, explicitly, they're right. They don't. But when God gives us a commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery, what he's saying is, this is the category for appropriate sexual relations, and that's all. And anything outside of this, including pornography, including homosexuality, 
including transgenderism, including fornication or sex before marriage. All of those clauses, all of those things are covered implicitly under the commandment to not commit adultery. And so we see then that the law starts touching all kinds of other areas of our behavior, even though specifically it only deals with one area of behavior. Last one. Since the provisions of the law apply not only to us, but to everyone else, we must try to help others keep those provisions in the context of our own position in life and theirs. Similarly, we must support others in keeping what the law commands them to do or not to do, and particularly by not joining them in doing what is forbidden. In other words, we've got an obligation as a a lover of neighbor to do whatever we can to restrain somebody from violating the moral law. It might just be a word that says, I don't think it's a good idea. God doesn't think it's a good idea, so I know it's not a good idea. You leave them alone, they've got to decide. But if God gives a commandment and you love your, your brother or your sister, your neighbor, and they're getting ready to violate that commandment and that will bring down some kind of a curse on their head, some kind of a judgment, you warn them. You warn them. Because you love them. Now, that doesn't mean you become a busybody and go around meddling in everybody's business. You, you, when, when it's appropriate to do so, you warn them. If they ask for your opinion, you give it. The other thing is that if you find somebody doing something that's wrong and they ask you to join them, you don't join them and encourage them in their wrongdoing. You, you say, no, I can't do that. You're hurting yourself and I'm not going to join you in that. I'm not going to bless that. I'm not going to baptize that, so to speak, is a good thing to do with your body or your money or your time or whatever else. So those are the principles that we're going to use to apply the law of God as we unpack these things. I'm going to end with a a clunky ending and just say um, the law of God is a wonderful thing. It is a crushing thing when you're on the wrong side of it. But one of the things that we start to understand about the law as we walk with Christ is that When we walk in the ways of the law, it lines us up with the kingdom of God. And it becomes a a way in which God's power flows to us in greater volume, shall we say, with greater reliability. So it's almost almost like a, you ever seen a ball valve, you know, that you put inside of a pipe? And and it's almost like when you disobey the law of God, it cuts off the flow of spiritual things in your life. And God just generally doesn't put you in a posture of blessedness. But as you deal with your sin and as you start to repent of your sin and cleanse it from your life, you suddenly find, oh, the power of God is now flowing to me in a way that is more pronounced than it was before. And so obedience to the law becomes not an earned blessing, because you can't ever earn blessings from God, but it becomes an appropriate blessing. Because God says, those who keep my law, I will bless. You know, there's a wonderful story told about a man named Eric Little. If you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, back in the 80s, it was about Little in part. And he was a Scottish Presbyterian. He was headed for the mission field, but he was also the fastest man in Britain. And he went to the Paris Olympics. I believe it was the 1928 Paris Olympics, 26, 28. And the race that he had trained for was going to be held on a Sunday. And he said, I won't run. 
And they brought him in in the movie. They brought him in to this room with, with the Prince of Wales and with all these other dignitaries and aristocrats, high people in British government and British culture. And they brought him in there to pressure him. Come on, man, for the glory of England, for the sake of the king, run. And he said, I will not run. Because the one who sets up kings and takes down kings has commanded me not to run on the Sabbath. Well, one of the other um, guys had already won a medal. And as an act of generosity, he said, I'll give you my place in a different race. But on a different day, on Monday. And so Little took that. And it wasn't a race that he trained for. It was a, a different kind of running. And as he's down there warming up, somebody comes to him, a stranger comes to him from the crowd and puts a piece of paper in his hand. And it's a verse from 1 Samuel. Them that honor me, I will honor. And Little ran that race. And Little set a world record in that race and won a gold medal in that race. And I think it's because he said, I will honor God above all things. And God said, here is a man I can safely bless with glory and with fame. Because he loves me, I will watch over him, and I will give him the desires of his heart. That's still true for you and me today. That's still true. Oh, Jesus' ways are not hard. They're not. Not if you've got grace in your life. Because you start to see, oh, I do, I do this thing that Jesus doesn't want me to do, and I'm deprived of a power and a presence that I've come to depend on and enjoy. I don't want to give that up. This sin is like slop. It's like vomit. I'm not going to go back to my vomit like a dog does. I'm, I'm just going to stay here with Jesus. And be blessed. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.